Open mine eyes that I may see Glimpses of truth thou hast for me Open mine eyes, illumine me Spirit divine Love of my life, I am crying I am not dying, I am dancing Dancing along in the madness There is no sadness like to invite you to a soul-level encounter. Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That's what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. You will hear the music that has charted the steps of their spiritual journey, that has provided a touchstone in the soul's dark night and sung the heart's awe and joy when come to the light. Over the next hour, you will be a witness and companion to our guest's spiritual path and sacred testimony. Welcome to Song of the Soul. got the great privilege to welcome Sai Khan as my Song of the Soul guest today. For years, Sai's music has stirred my imagination and passion to make this a better world, and his recent book called Creative Community Organizing inspires such work through the interplay of real-life stories and songs on the various themes of the book. Sai Khan's most recent CD is Courage, and it's a great joy to have him with us here today. Sai, at long last, I'm so pleased to have you here for Song of the Soul. Mark, it's great to be here after such a long time. You know, my longtime friend and music and lecture agent, Josh Dunson, was on with you just, what, a, few, a week ago? Uh, he said he had a wonderful conversation with you. He's a wonderful man, and it's really great that people like you and him, who really have changed for the world at their heart, that we find each other and we help each other forward. You know, it's true. It's, it's funny. I, I met Josh, I think, at the University of Chicago Folk Festival in 1979. That was the first time that I had ever sung in public. I was 35 years old, and I'd, I think I'd had my second CD out, but I had never performed in public. Now, I have led singing, you know, at union rallies, political rallies, picket lines, mass meetings, but, you know, it's one thing to get up in front of everybody and do We Shall Not Be Moved when everybody knows it. It's another thing to get out there and do your own songs. And after my set, Josh came up to me and, and said, do you have representation? I said, 
gee, I, I don't think I need a lawyer. I hope nobody's going to sue me on account of this. I didn't even know what, what he meant, you know. But he's been my agent pretty much since. And, and it, it's wonderful to work with somebody who, who shares your human values, who shares your political values, who has a commitment to peace in the world and to justice in the world. You know, you, you're not just known by the company you keep. You're known by the company that speaks for you. So I, I wouldn't be comfortable with an agent who was basically... You know, I don't really agree with your politics, but, you know, I, I, but I, I'd like to work with you. The more we can spend our lives in the company of people who share a vision just of a better world, of a more peaceful world, a more just world, I think it enhances our own spirits and our own ability to do good work in the world. Where did this come from you? You know, I've got enough of your biography. I've got pieces of it all around because of the book that just came out last year, Creative Community Organizing. So I got some vignettes of your life along the way. But I had assumed that you were performing music from very, very early on, maybe from your childhood. That wasn't the case. Well, I've been, you know, when I was five years old, my sister and I would make up little play parodies you know, and, and performing for our parents with a bedsheet as a as a, <laughs> a curtain. And I've been singing music all my life. I'm a passionate traditional folk fan, and I know hundreds of traditional songs. So I've been singing, I've been playing since a very, very early age, but the performance came much later. But where the music came from, I think so much of it came from my parents. And the values came from my parents. Maybe what we could do here is maybe I could read something from creative community organizing that's really right about this, and also about my own Jewish roots, which are very much a part of why I do the work in the world that I do, and then we could have you know, some songs that deal with this. Maybe we could do, for example, Lady of the Harbor, which is about one of my grandfathers and very much has to do with the values that I have. Well, here's this is from Creative Community Organizing, a guide for rabble-rousers, activists, and quiet lovers of justice. And here's what I write. By now you will not be surprised to learn that I go through life humming to myself. On a clear day, you can hear me before you can see me. Even when by sheer mental effort I succeed in sealing my lips, if you look deep into my eyes, you can see the notes silently making their way along the staff. Where did all this music come from? What is a nice Jewish boy doing singing in a place like this when I was growing up, not here in the South, where I've now lived and worked for 45 years, but in the deep North? Our family sang together. On the Sabbath and on holidays, we would stay at the dinner table long after the food and dishes had been cleared, and we would sing because musical instruments were not allowed on the Sabbath. We sang without instrumentation but not without accompaniment. From my grandfather, Gabriel Kahn, who had traveled through Russia with his uncle's Yiddish-Italian opera troupe before he got drafted into the Tsar's army and suddenly became highly motivated to emigrate to the United States, I learned the fine points of creating a rhythm section using only two basic variations, closed fist and open palm, of the basic hand-on-table technique. From my parents, Rosalind and Benjamin Kahn, I learned once my sister Jeanette Kahn and I had the basic tunes down, the rudiments of high and low harmony made up as you go along. The songs we sang were mostly prayers, 
composed thousands of years ago in Hebrew. There were prayers for different holidays, for the beginning of each lunar month, for the Sabbath, and for various combinations thereof. Naturally, over that many years, melodies had changed. My mother's side of the family was convinced that my father's side had changed them accidentally or deliberately, and vice versa. The preferred method for settling these disagreements was to sing as loudly as possible. Whichever side of the family was able to overwhelm the other was generally conceded to have history on its side, along with the correct version of the melody. We sang a little bit in Yiddish too, folk and story songs from the old country, which in this case meant almost any place in Europe. Hebrew had been the language of prayer for the Jews of Europe, but Yiddish was the language of everyday life in our house, except for the songs that had been reduced to the language of secrets, which our parents used when they wanted to communicate with each other privately in front of us. Despite this incentive to learn Yiddish, I never did, beyond the few phrases known to anyone who has lived in New York, regardless of race, color, creed, or national origin. So the truth of the matter is that although I learned many songs, and I'm amazed at how many I still know by heart, I never understood most of what I was singing. What's wonderful is that it never seemed to matter. I understood quite well what the songs really meant to us as Jews, as a family, as people in the world. They were our bond, our unity, our affirmation, our courage. They were our way of claiming our rhythmic and harmonic relation with each other and with our community. Our songs reinforced our solidarity, our sense that we could overcome the obstacles in our path. They helped us feel proud of the side we were on. My grandpa was a scholar back in the old country, but he fled from Lithuania in 1893 with knowledge his companion and liberty his hope. He sailed up to the lady of the Imagine then how beautiful that torchlight must have seemed to a frightened Jewish immigrant caught up in freedom's dream. But the land had room for many, and he studied while he worked by the lamplight of the lady of the Give me your tired, your poor, your hot old masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send them the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. In 1937, 
A band of Jewish refugees sought shelter in this land. With the Nazis close behind them, they sailed their leaky boats towards the safety of the Lady of the Harbor. But every door was closed to them would take them in Till sick at heart they sailed back home to Germany again Where their dreams were turned to ashes and their bodies turned to smoke That drifted past the lady of the harbor Give me your tired, your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free The wretched refuse of your teeming shore Send them the homeless tempest-tossed to me I lift my lamp beside the golden door So if these silent lips could speak, what reasons would they say? Why some are sheltered freely, but others turned away. Now as the terror rises, a fleeing world awaits. An answer from the lady of the For all along the borders, the nightmare comes again As homeless, stateless refugees seek shelter in this land Will the lamp be raised to welcome them or turn them back once more? Only silence from the lady of the harbor Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send them the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And that song was Lady of the Harbor. It's off of Courage by Sai Khan, who's with us here today for Song of the Soul. As you've heard, uh, and it's pretty obvious, in little bits of throughout your book, your Jewish background is important to you, Sai. How did that develop for you? Uh, you did your bar mitzvah, I guess, at, you know, 13. I just was at a bar mitzvah for a longtime friend of mine. He did it at 58, just didn't get around to it back in the old days. <laughs> you know, Kirk Douglas, the great movie star, was bar mitzvahed in his 80s. I thought that was really wonderful. Isn't that pretty tough? Because then you have to do all that memorization of Hebrew. You don't actually memorize it in many cases, and a lot of people do it by what's called transliteration, meaning that the, you don't read the Hebrew letters, you read an English 
version of what it sounds like. But sure, sure, I'm sure it's uh, it's as terrifying at at 52 as it is at 13. But but you know the the religious part of Judaism is not so much what shaped my political views, my activism. It's really much more a sense of Jewish ethics, a sense of Jewish history, and, and frankly, just the way I was raised. My parents were not political activists in any classic sense, but they were deeply politically aware and concerned. I'll, t- I'll tell you a story about this. I was raised in State College, Pennsylvania, you know, the home of Penn State. Well, actually, University Park, the Twin Cities, the Hope of Penn State. But it, this is before the creation of University Park. Uh, today, that's a major mini-metropolitan, 100,000 people in the community, something like 40,000 people at the university. When, when I grew up, it was a small town in the mountains, six to 8,000 people, and Penn State was still a college with about eight or 9,000 students. In the early 50s, colleges and universities in which virtually all sports had been racially segregated, began bringing in African-American players. So the first African-American players arrived on the Penn State campus. They were, in fact, all all All-Americans. Jesse Yardell, Rosie Greer, Tony Radoff, number 22, Roosevelt Greer, Rosie Greer, once came to my school, I think I was in the second grade, and threw me a pass, which I dropped. You know, ending my, my football career at a very, much too young age, very traumatic. And we had two little barber shops in this town, two chairs each. And they each said, we're not prejudiced, but we don't know how to cut that kind of hair. So we won't. Now, my dad organized a picket line of clergy who, you know, for several days went up and down with size in front of these two little barber shops, you know, demanding that they cut everybody's hair, as any barber shop should. My mom, who did not drive got somebody to take her to Tyrone, which was a pulp mill town about 25, 30 miles through the mountains, meaning it was a a long drive, which had a reasonably large African-American community. And Mom walked into an African-American barber shop and explained the situation to the barber and said, would you be willing to come down every two weeks? I'll set up a chair in the kitchen, and you can cut these young students there. And that's what she did. So, you know, when you have that kind of upbringing where your parents are not just talking about social justice, but make it real in their lives and in very different ways, in in public, vocal ways and in quiet, private ways, how can you not grow up to believe? So I think that's one factor. The other factor, and I think behind my parents' sense of justice was the Holocaust. I mean, I was born in 1944. My mom and my dad... Our entire family lost terribly in the Holocaust. I I don't have real numbers. I would say probably 30 to 40 family members were murdered. You know, my parents' grandparents, meaning the parents of their parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews. In my mom's case, many of these were people she knew. They had come to this country and gone back and been caught up in the Holocaust. I think that one of the truths about the Jewish community in the United States, particularly in the 60s and 70s, was that the experience of the Holocaust was so traumatic, it was such an individual and collective trauma, that individual Jews were motivated towards social justice, partly by the understanding that if this starts with anybody, it can reach you, you know? You cannot let 
racism and misogyny and homophobia and any kind of violent, prejudiced attitude begin to take root with any group of people. Because sooner or later it spreads. It never ends with just those people. And for many, many, many groups, sooner or later it comes around to us. I expressed this in a song called Children of Poland that, uh, that is about Janusz Korczak, who is a doctor in the Warsaw Ghetto. This is his story at the beginning, but the ending is really about stating in music what I just said to you. In the city of Warsaw, such a long time ago, 200 children stand lined row on row with their freshly washed faces and freshly washed clothes. The children of Poland who never grow in the orphanage yard not a child remains the soldiers have herded them down to the trains carrying small flasks of water and bags of dry bread to march in the ranks of the unquiet dead with their small Jewish faces and pale haunted eyes. They march hand in hand down the street. No one cries, no one laughs, no one looks. No one turns, no one talks As they walk down the streets Where my grandparents walked Had my grandparents stayed In that dark, bloody land My own children too Would have marched hand in hand To the beat of the soldiers the jack-booted stamp that would measure their lives till they died in those camps. The cries of my children at night take me back to those pale hollow faces in stark white and black only the blood of the children remains. It runs in the streets, and it runs in our veins. That was from the CD, In My Heart, a retrospective by Sai Khan, who's with us here today, Song of the Soul, Children of Poland. Uh, isn't directly about your family. And the first one we listened to, Lady of the Harbor, that's directly your lineage, right? Yeah, that's my mother's father, Simon Hirsch Aronson, after whom I was named. So that means that your full name is Simon, but you've been Sai forever and a day? Oh, since I was 16 years old. As I'm sure you know that in Jewish, not so, not in religion, but in Jewish culture, which is another name for superstition, uh, in this case... We don't name 
anyone after a living person. It's, you, it's very rare to see a Jewish junior or, you know, Mark helps me the third. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see that in a Jewish community. But the reason is not religious. It's folk tradition. So, and because the feeling was that if the angel of death, God forbid, should come to your house and you had two people with the same name, the angel of death might take the younger rather than the older. And so to prevent that, you never named any child after a living person to avoid that kind of a disaster. And this happened to my own grandfather, Simon Hirsch Aronson, who's, who's the grandfather in the song when it says, you know, my grandpa was a scholar. When he was four years old, he came down with jaundice, which I think is actually you know, a, a liver misfunction. With a physical manifestation, is that you turn yellow. And he turned very yellow, and he was, you know, probably legitimately near death. His grandmother, who was from the old country, employed the traditional method of curing jaundice, which is to take a copper frying pan, a yellow frying pan, and hold it up to the person who is suffering, and the yellow in the frying pan will draw the yellow out of their body and cure them. And I, I as proof that this works, I still have this actual frying pan. This is true. So she did this, and my grandfather survived. It had been such a close call that they were afraid that the angel of death would return. You know, sort of, in, in contemporary labor terms, I would say, the angel of death checks in after work, and whichever the supervising archangel says, yeah, I got that one, got that one, got that one. Where's the Aronson kid? And the angel of death says, wait, let me see the list. He says, oh my God, you know, I was tired, it was a long day, and the archangel says, hey, you know the rules, you pick them all up, no overtime, you keep working, go back and get them. So, by then, however, my family had held a second naming ceremony, and they had added the name Moses to his full name, so he was now Simon Hirsch Moses Aronson. So the angel of death looks down, and he says, well, this is clearly the problem. This is not my screw-up. This is in, 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 you know, in the, it's an administrative error. It's the supervisor's fault. They clearly wrote down Simon Hirsch Aronson, and this kid is clearly... Simon Hirsch, Moses Aaron says, not my mistake, goes back and says to the boss, you screwed up, I didn't, I want my overtime. So this is true. And I have my grandfather's cigar lighter from his adulthood that has the four initials on it. So that was, you said, your maternal grandfather? Did you, both your grandparents come from Russia? My mother's father came from Lithuania, the one, the one about whom I just told you the story. My father's grandfather and grandmother came from that area that some days is Poland and some days is Russia, just depending on who's winning the war. Growing up the son of a rabbi, that's like being a preacher's kid. Doesn't that mean you have to be a perfect kid? And yeah, I mean, in maybe that in your family's case, that meant being the perfect community organizer. No, actually, you, you know, the abbreviation is PK, preacher's kid. We have a moral obligation to fight against what you just described and so preacher's kids are generally known to be publicly serene and privately somewhat wild. It's our, it's our obligation, Mark. It really is. But for me also, I think that was not a factor in my life. Living up to my parents' religious expectations never worked for me. Living up to their expectations in terms of value and behavior, that was a very strong pressure. But what my parents expected was not that we would conform, we being my sister and myself, 
but that we would stand up against majority opinion if something wrong was being done. That could definitely fit within your description of moral obligations of the preacher's kid. And in my case, I felt that really strongly, and I was inspired by my parents, who were very socially involved, very morally centered, very clear about right and wrong. And, and so, sure, that was very helpful to me. But I think the other thing is that I grew up as one of very few Jews in a profoundly Christian community, in, in a substantially fundamentalist community. So, sort of religiously, culturally, politically, I felt very much an outsider within my own community. I have yet to meet an organizer who didn't feel themselves to be, in some significant ways, an outsider. We are people who, in some senses, have certain elements of ruthlessness. I'm also very, very strongly rooted in, in my marriage, in the children and our grandchild, you know, in, with my parents and grandparents with their lives, with the very large family. There were seven in my mom's family, five in my dad's. I remain as close as a sister or brother to many, many cousins. Uh, but Woody Guthrie says, I ain't got a home in this world anymore. Uh, I never did, except those I organized for myself, whether that was family, whether that was community. So sort of my psychological theory about organizers is knowing that we are outsiders, knowing that there's no place that we really belong, we build these communities and these organizations of which we ourselves can then be a part. Which a little bit of that story comes out through your latest book, and you've got some others. The latest one is Creative Community Organizing, PsyCon. It's a guide for rabble rousers, activists, and quiet lovers of justice. Where do people get this? Hopefully through your independent bookstore or through um, one of the, for example, Powell Books, which is a progressive, unionized alternative. You can get it through the usual corporate online services, but, you know, you can patronize your local independent bookstore. If they don't have it, they can easily order it. You know, let's, let's support those who support us. Or I guess you could get it at my website, too, or, you know, SciCon.com. But if you've got a, an independent bookstore, you know, help them out. Go there first. So start with a link from northernspiritradio.org. You can go to Cy Khan's site. You'll find some other places to get this book and to find some more of his music. And this is Song of the Soul, so let's hear some more of that music. Where should we go next? Well, I'm going to do a song, and people are going to initially say, I don't understand why he chose that song, but let's do Otis is Flying. You want to give any introduction why Otis is Flying? Oh, no, that would give it all away. Okay, here we go. Otis is Flying by Cy Khan. Me and Otis down by the river Walking together in the heat of the day Me on my two feet Otis on his four feet as the geese fly south down the Hudson River flyway. And the geese look down at the old railway station in his imagination. Otis is flying. It's the existential angst of the Labrador retriever, and it will last. Until supper time 
What if our lives were measured in dog years? Would I still be here? I can't figure it out. So we turn towards home, where supper is waiting. The river flows on and the geese fly south. And the geese look down at the old railway station. In his imagination, Otis is flying. It's the existential angst of the Labrador Retriever, and it will last until supper time. It will last until supper time. Otis is flying, and you know, Cy, I'm going to have, what are they, dreams, nightmares, I don't know, existential angst of a Labrador retriever, that's a great line. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's very interesting, the ways in which different audiences react, it's, it's, a, it's a nice giveaway, but yeah, but, but people really, really love this, you know, it was, uh, it was actually number three on the international folk DJ chart for the year. People ask me, how's Otis doing? You know, but, but here's why I chose to play that song. And Otis, by the way, is Tom Chapin's dog, you know, the wonderful performer, songwriter, humanitarian. Tom, Tom is just a wonderful guy. And he and I wrote the song together about his dog, Otis. You know, Otis is a visionary. Otis is someone who doesn't believe that he has limitations. And he's a dog. And here he is, he's, you know, loping along, and here come the geese flying south along the Hudson River Flyway, and Otis looks up at them, and they are so far up in the sky, and it, they, they look like they know things he doesn't know, like they, they have power that he doesn't have, There's going someplace that he wants to go, but he's a dog. So what does he do? He races along the ground as fast as he can, and when he's got the top speed, he leaps up to the air, you know, flapping his forepaws because he actually believes that he can fly. And that's what it's like, Mark, in my experience, to be a faith-rooted social justice activist. You know, up above us, there's all this power. There's the corporations, there's the individual wealthy, there's, there's the people who make decisions that affect our lives, and we have no say in those decisions. We have no power over them now. But we absolutely have faith that we can bring them closer to the ground and we can bring ourselves 
not just individually but collectively, closer up to where they are. And so we race along the ground, we, we picket, we write letters, we vigil, we go to meetings, we hold witness, we act as stewards, we object, we protest. And a surprising number of times, it actually works. Often to our amazement, it actually works. We get a victory. We protect people. We save neighborhoods. We get funding redirected. We get powers limited. We protect the environment. It actually works. So for me, the song Otis is Flying and Otis, the Labrador Retriever with existential angst, it's a metaphor for what it means to be a faith-based, a faith-bearing social justice activist. You know, Sai, I got to know about you from your music first. I mean, I get together, uh, there's a monthly song circle here in Eau Claire, and so we sing songs like Gone, Gonna Rise Again, and so on. So we sing all these songs, and I thought you were just a, a singer, but really, I guess it goes the other way. You're an organizer who sings. Is that how you make your income? Let's put it this way. Do you make an income? <laughs> oh, no, no. I, for, the, for 30 years, until I retired from grassroots leadership, I had a, uh, a steady job. I supported my music through my organizing. But I had a very steady day job. Grassroots leadership is a great organization. I, I can say that now that I'm no longer working for it, although I still work as a volunteer, we have a a stunning new executive director, Donna Redwing. We do work all over the country, particularly in the South and Southwest, to oppose for-profit private prisons, one of the most immoral ideas. Talk about spirited action. That's one of the most unethical ideas that the capitalist system, that the economic system has ever come up with, to imprison people in order to enrich corporations, which really means passing that through to wealthy individuals, the, the directors, the shareholders. We succeeded just a year ago, August, in getting 150 immigrant kids out from a for-profit private immigrant detention center in Taylor, Texas. And I'm not talking about, like, children who are in a juvenile facility because they've done something. These were kids who had done nothing, who were in a former medium-security prison just because they had been with their parents when their parents were caught without having the proper documents to be in this country. Talk about visiting the sins of the parents, of the children. That's a prime example. We got those kids and their parents released. We stopped the Obama administration from building any more facilities like this. It's a completely wonderful organization, but among the many wonderful things that it provided for me were a salary that came in every two weeks, complete medical, dental, and psychiatric care for myself and my family, a genuine pension that I'm now enjoying, and wonderful working conditions. So you know, and, and I want I want people to know this because everybody thinks that if you're a social justice activist, as if you spend your life working for justice, that you're doomed to a life of poverty and deprivation. This is far, far from the truth. There are nonprofit organizations doing great progressive work all over the country that also respect the rights of those who labor. Blessed are those who labor, right? So I, I don't want people who are listening to think, well, I'd like to do the sort of stuff that Cy does, but, you know, I've got a family. I have a very long-term marriage to Elizabeth K. Mark Minnick, an extraordinary feminist philosopher and the greatest companion that I could ask for in this world. We have three adult children that we raised, or partially raised, they partially raised us. Two of them have spouses. We have a grandson as of February the 1st, and we lead a good life. I wish more people in this country, in the world, 
had the really the privilege and the security that we have, and we've done it while working out there on the edge and while challenging power, both of us. <laughs> and my music, is, for 30 years, the income from all of my performances went to grassroots leadership to help pay the budget. It wouldn't be fair when we're all drawing salaries for me to be able to go off on a weekend and you know bring in a lot of extra for myself. So that always went straight to the organization. So I think it is ironic, Mark, because Wallace Stevens, for example, one of our great poets, his day job was being an, a vice president of the Hartford Insurance Company, and he wrote his poetry in his spare time. That's a pretty secure job. I think it's, there's something droll about I supported my music habit by being a social justice activist. And in fact, so much of your work was trying to make living wage and decent living for so many other people. Absolutely. Well, you talked about your work against these for-profit organizations. You've got the Courage CD, which you released at the same time Creative Community Organizing came out, and you have songs that illustrate stuff from the topics. Can you share one of those for our listeners today? The situation I just described is, what should we say, emblazoned through the song Hutto. Hutto was the name of the for-profit private immigrant detention center in Taylor, Texas that I mentioned. It was named after T. Don Hutto. The initials T. Don Hutto, who was a officer of Corrections Corporation of America, the world's largest for-profit private prison corporation, and this is their story. A man called T. Don Hutto must have been some kind of man, cause he sure got a man-sized share of fame. It's not just anybody. Gets their name put on a building Where children are held prisoner in their name The town of Taylor, Texas Is just an hour from Austin But when you're there you're in a world away Look inside the prison yard Just beyond the chain link fence We'll see young children at their play You might well stop and ask yourself What have these young children done To be sentenced to such painful loss and fear It's all because their mom or dad Was caught here without documents Like 12 million others living here All immigrants should go back where they came from And if they don't, hell, let them rot in jail But if it was your own daughter In a cell at T. Don Hutto With your grandchild in her arms How would you feel? What would you say if your own two or four, or six, or eight-year-old was growing up in prison like these kids. Since when in these United States do we put kids in prison because of what we say their parents did? Call it family detention. Say we do it for the children. You're lying to yourself down to the roots 
toilet playing politics with children's lives and sanity. You're getting somewhat closer to the truth. So if you're down in Austin, take the highway out to Taylor. Bring some good friends with you for the ride. You might even wear a flag pin to show you still believe in the dream for which so many fought and died. Step out onto the highway, turn to face the prison, stare at those walls till you forget your name. Say a prayer for T. Don Hutto. Say a prayer for all those children. And close your eyes and hang your head in shame. That was Hutto, Sai Khan. It's from his newest CD, Courage. Not a lot of his organizing, and but also life, also existential angst of Labrador Retrievers. It's a good mix. I think you'll enjoy it. If you go to his website, you can find it through my website, northernspiritradio.org, psycon.com. You know, the great peace musician Charlie King anonymously circulated a joke on the Internet years ago that goes, did you hear that Sycon is changing his name? And you say, really? To what? Ho Chi Minh City. <laughs> it's pretty obscure. <laughs> but Charlie King is not. And Charlie King has been on my program, both Spirit and Action, Song of the Soul. You can go to northernspiritradio.org and find those interviews, as well as the recent interview I did with his partner, Karen Brando. So, you've worked in so many areas of organizing, Sai. You know, I kind of wonder about the overall values that propel you in this. Are there other things, other threads of it that we should know about? You know, the, the other thing I would add is just a lifetime spent in the movement. I feel like I got so much back from my work as a, as a civil rights organizer, as a union organizer, as a community organizer, what I know, I learned from people. I learned from wonderful people. Nobody famous, nobody whose name anybody would recognize, but people who had just skill and heart, who did wonderful work you know, in, in their communities, just wonderful work in the world. They've been my teachers. They've made me what I am as an organizer. So my years with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee with SNCC in the Southern Civil Rights Movement, my years with the United Mine Workers of America, the Brookside Strike in Harlan County, years with the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union, the J.P. Stevens campaign that I was a part of for five years, the 30 years at grassroots leadership, and all the campaigns and work that we did around environmental issues, peace issues, feminist issues, racism, building neighborhood organizations, building statewide coalitions, and then this, this really extraordinary campaign, grassroots leadership, is a leading organization anywhere in the world, fighting for-profit private prisons and immigrant detention, working on immigration issues. You know, everyone I've worked with ever has taught me so much. 
and if I'm a good organizer, that's how I became one. I, people people took me in, sort of politically and professionally, when I didn't know anything. I talk about this in my book, Creative Community Organizing, the, the patience that more senior organizers had with me when all I could do was make mistakes. And so I, I really feel that the movement has shaped me and kept me. My, my father, the rabbi, who was religiously observed, what we call Shomer Shabbos, he observed the Sabbath and prayed three times a day. My father was fond of saying, it's true that I kept the Sabbath, but it's also true that the Sabbath kept me. And I would say, yeah, I've kept the movement, but the movement has also kept me. And in some ways, I really do see the movement as my spiritual home. You know, that's where my spirit gets nourished. That's where I rebuild the ability to keep fighting, to keep the faith. I do think that, for me, if there's a watchword, it's keep the faith. And, and the faith is a faith in people. It's a faith in the possibility of change. It's a faith in the possibility of justice of a better world. And, you know, and there are days when you know, I look at the headlines and I think, doesn't look like we're going to get a better world today, does it? And, you know, there's so many stones in our pathway that block the road to justice, that block the road to progress. And there's so many heartbreaking things that happen day after day, but I do have faith in the possibility of a better world. I I work in absolute faith that if the world survives, that someday we will see, and the we is not you and I, Mark, it's people maybe 500, 1,000 years from now, that someday people will walk in the light, that they will have justice, that there will be food for all and housing for all, and care for all, in every sense of the world. I have absolutely faith that that world will come someday. All I ask is that every once in a while, I get a taste of it, I get a glimpse of it. And that's enough to keep me going. And a lot of times your music engenders that kind of faith and hope for the rest of us. Can you pick one more song to send us out with? Sure, thank you. Thank you for saying it. It's what I wanted to do. I write my music for other people and, of course, for other dogs. I mean, I hope the dogs are out there listening to Otis is flying and thinking, yeah, man, that's what it's like, you know. Sure. I mean, I think if there's a song of mine that really exemplifies it, it's a song called What You Do With What You Got that really says don't romanticize what it means to be someone who stands for justice and who works for a better world, who works for peace. And don't allow yourself to say, I'm not big enough, I'm not skillful enough, I'm not emotionally strong enough to be one of those people. Don't take easy excuses. A better world is built by a million small acts combined with some great ones. The title of the song is What You Do With What You Got. If I have a spiritual philosophy, it's in that song. We're sending you out for today's Song of the Soul interview with Sai Khan with his song, what you do with what you got. Thanks so much for joining us, Sai. Thanks, Mark. It was a great interview. I really, I really appreciate what you do to help keep all of us going. You must know someone like him. He was tall and strong and lean, body like a greyhound. Mind so sharp and keen, but his heart, just like a laurel, grew twisted on itself. 
till almost everything he did brought pain to someone else. It's not just what you're born with, it's what you choose to bear. It's not how large your share is, but how much you can share. It's not the fights you dream of, but those you really fought. It's not just what you're given, but what you do with what you got. For what's the use of two strong legs if you only run away? What good is the finest voice if you've nothing good to say? What good are strength and muscle if you only push and shove? What's the use of two good ears if you can't hear those you love? It's not just what you're born with, it's what you choose to bear. It's not how large your share is, but how much you can share. It's not the fights you dream of, but those you really fought. It's not just what you're given, but what you do with what you got. Between those who use their neighbor and those who use a cane. Between those in constant power and those in constant pain. Between those who run to evil and those who cannot run. Tell me which ones are the cripples and which ones touch the sun. It's not just what you're born with. It's what you choose to bear. It's not how large your share is, but how much you can share. It's not the fights you dream of, but those you really fought. It's not just what you're given, but what you do with what you got. Thank you. The theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it's called Song of the Soul. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and this is a Northern Spirit Radio production. You can listen to this program again, track down the list of songs included, and a whole lot more on my website, northernspiritradio.org. And I invite you to share your Song of the Soul with my listeners. Just contact me via my website. And please, join me weekly for Song of the Soul. You can be happy That in the light it will heal you And you can feel you And sing out a song of the soul